<clears throat> All right. Today will be the first day of a new series of beginning, and I am really, really excited to do this series. I am going to be doing a series entitled Baptist Distinctives. I think this is a needful thing. Uh, the lecture today is only going to be an introduction to the course, to the series of lectures, not an introduction to the actual material. Lord willing, on next week, I will begin to introduce my actual intended course material. Uh, but today, I just wanted to introduce you to not the material, but to the course that I intend to offer, what, what we're going to be doing, Baptist Distinctives. So this, I subtitled this, An Introduction to the Course, Not to the Material. And I wanted to start with a personal testimony, which I know most of you know, uh, but I wanted to, uh, for the sake of the series and for the sake of the recording and those that get these lectures online, I wanted to give this word of personal testimony. Uh, there are, by the way, uh, distinctives, beliefs that Baptists hold that are distinct to Baptists, and that is specifically what I want to be treating over the next few weeks in these lectures. My personal testimony, though, I want to give with regard to being a Baptist. I was born in the Deep South and into a Southern Baptist church, and uh, I was reared Southern Baptist in a Southern Baptist church, and never intended or expected, frankly, ever to be anything but a Southern Baptist. I'd never even entertained the thought of ever being anything else. And then when I went to college, went to Bible college, and took theological training and so forth, all of that was done through Baptist institutions. And I thought myself to be a Baptist. <clears throat> and then we, the wife and I, went off, as you know, to be, uh, to do work in Ireland, in the south of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. <clears throat> and, uh, the most powerful and influential thing in my life that happened to us in Ireland, although Ireland was and is, I assume still is, predominantly Roman Catholic, it was not that that had the most influence on me. Uh, it was actually, as it turns out, in God's providence, it was actually a Presbyterian who lived where we lived, who had the most profound influence on me. Because of his knowledge of the scriptures and his knowledge of theology, he challenged me and in ways that I had never been challenged. They have, we have that little kind of laughable expression, you know, not only did I not have all the answers, I hadn't even heard all the questions. I had no clue. I could not defend myself on nearly any subject he raised. Uh, he just took me to the whipping post every time we talked. And uh, I was 
because of that influence there, Galway, we were living in Galway, Ireland, uh, he, he put me, put my nose in the scriptures and put me to study. And I had to sort out <laughs> a lot of things. A lot of things I had taken for granted. I assumed I didn't really had never been challenged. I didn't know that there was even a challenge to be had. That was a very uh, traumatic experience for us. And we really had to dig deep, dive, and take a hard look. And there was a time, there was a short period of time there, where I was very quite prepared to throw off Baptists entirely, abandon the Baptist denomination completely, and step away from it. And uh, so I was driven by this brother, by his questioning. Now, he was a Presbyterian, not a Baptist. It was his, it was his challenges to me as a Presbyterian that put me to the study that I got into. And, uh, I simply tell people now, when I went to Ireland, I thought I was a Baptist. When I came back, I knew I was a Baptist. I knew why. I knew what the issues were. And I had studied them out completely to my satisfaction and to the satisfaction of my heart for all these many years since. So that's just a word of testimony from me where I'm coming from. Uh, when I take up to teach you uh, a series of lectures on Baptist distinctives, I want you to understand that it's not coming to you purely from an academic perspective or from an academic uh, platform. It's coming to you from a man who holds with deep conviction these distinctives. I know what I hold and I know why I hold. And that could not have been said of me when I, those many years ago. And again, Ireland really had nothing to do with that. The nation of Ireland, uh, being in a Roman Catholic context had nothing to do with that. It was purely in the providence of God that I found myself in the same place in Galway City with this Presbyterian who was not from there and was not a Roman Catholic either. But the two of us found ourselves in the providence of God, our paths crossed there in Galway, Ireland. And uh, it was a crossing of our paths that put me into this study Put me in a tailspin, frankly. Theologically, I was in a real uh, quandary for a good while until I could study out these things and get answers to him <clears throat> and for myself. So, that's a brief word of testimony to uh, uh, so you know where I'm coming from. Now, again, this is an introduction to the course. I wanted to introduce you to the two principal text books that I will be using for this course. Both of them 
were recommended to me by Brother John Gormley, and I have studied them. <clears throat> there are other, many other textbooks. There are many other books that have been written on the subject of Baptist distinctives, and uh, <clears throat> but none of them begin to compare with the two that I'm going to introduce you to. You may want to buy them. Uh, you may not. doesn't matter to me. But I'm just telling you that I will be drawing uh, a good bit of the bulk of my lecture content from these two particular books. <clears throat> the first one is called The Church Member's Manual. It was written by William Crowell, C-R-O-W-E-L-L, -L, in 1847. Now, needless to say, this is not an original copy. <laughs> 1847. Uh, this gentleman uh, was helped, by the way, to create the Baptist hymnal that we use. He was implemented uh, instrumental in the in the uh, creation of that. He he lived from 1806 through 1871. Now this particular edition, if you want to get a copy of it, my wife can tell you where she got it. <laughs> she, she ordered this for me. It is a it's actually a, it's a, uh, it's not a republication, it's a reprint. I mean specifically a facsimile reproduction is what I'm trying to say. It's a facsimile reproduction of the original, uh, church manual. Now, let me just read you a bit of his preface here. Uh, he talks about Dr. Knowles, <clears throat> his preface. Let me just read you what he says. He said among, this is, this is the author's preface to his book on the church members manual, 18, uh, what did I say, 1847. He said, among the recollections most sweet and mournful to the writer, that's to the gentleman who wrote this, are the little incidents of his last meeting with la the lamented Dr. Knowles. And if you want to know more about Dr. Knowles, see my wife or brother John, fit in. But he was a student under Dr. Knowles. And he said one of the sweetest and mournful memories he has was the last meeting he had with Dr. Knowles. He said it was the closing day of our winter term at the Newton Theological Institute. A six weeks vacation to be followed by a brief summer term was all that remained to us before our final separation for the toils of the Christian ministry. He was finishing up his degree. And he had uh, just that little bit left to do. And they went at, at the day that they had this conversation. The exercises of the hour ended. We lingered a moment around our beloved teacher. He had spoken to us of a particular branch of pastoral duty. Imagine that, Brother Donald. Professor of Theology speaking to students about pastoral duty. <laughs> Conversation having turned on the topic of the lecture, 
He who now writes, that's the author of this book, remarked that a treatise on our church order and discipline for the use of young ministers and church members was much needed. Was much needed in 1847. Other members of the class confirmed the opinion inquiring where such a guide could be found. So they're asking their professor where they could find a book that would help them as young pastors with this subject of their particular teachings. When he modestly said, as we hoped he would, that he had such a work in preparation, which might be expected in a few months. Gratified with this intelligence, we separated with his warmest wishes for our welfare till we meet again. But alas, we did meet. When early summer had decked that hallowed spot with beauty, a sad and stricken class they met to pour out our tears over his freshly covered grave. So Dr. Knowles died. His manuscript was placed in the judicious hands of brethren, some of his brethren, the brethren in the church, the intimate friends of its author, who after careful perusal decided that to publish it would be to an injury to his memory. It was a, it was a first hasty draft and lacked the finishing touches of his graceful pen. So they said, we can't publish this. It's just not in a finished form. Well, to go forward, in prosecution of these inquiries, my only desire was to follow the truth. They had inquired, they were inquiring for this gentleman to pursue the publication of Dr. Knowles' manuscripts. For ties of sect, I care little. For names, I care still less. If the Baptist churches were not true churches, I would leave them. That's where I was <laughs> at one time. My first inquiry after the true principles of church constitution there was... What and where is the church? That was the, that was the question of principles that this man was seeking to answer. In other words, he said, I want to know what is the church and where is the church? And he said, I don't care for, I'm not committed to any denomination, any sect, I just want the truth. Where and what is the church? I will go there. Okay? What oracle must I consult? So where are we going to find the answer to that question? Where is, who is the church? What is the church? He says, do we ask the church? Must I ask the church to tell me what and where the church is? 
<laughs> I might as well go to Delphi or to the shrine of Jupiter Ammon to inquire who is God and where is his temple. Do we appeal to tradition? The responses are like the echoes of Babel. They have led some to believe that their Jerusalem is the only place where men ought to worship. Others to contend as strenuously for this mountain or for their own Delos or their Bura or something according to the responses which they fancied were divine. But we demand an independent, unimpeachable witness. This goes to our discussion at the breakfast table, gentlemen, this morning. As Baptists, we demand an independent, unimpeachable witness to answer this question. We therefore reject them all. Traditions, denominations, religion. We reject them all and turn to the inspired oracles of the living God, to the Bible, and to the Bible only. What is the church, he says? This is the real point of divergence from the divinely modeled culture of Christ's visible spiritual kingdom into the cheerless masses of Abrahamic covenants, faith by proxy, ordinances without faith, territorial churches, whatever. This is the great question of the age. What is the church? This was 1847. The rationalist is laboring to solve it in his sense of the term by the help of unassisted reason if that can be called reason, which runs riot from the maker. <laughs> the papist, by adjuring reason, uh, reason in his blind submission to what he calls the church. The Baptist seek to answer it by exalting reason to be the interpreter and reverent pupil of the word of God. The first would set up human reason to judge the Bible and the church. The second allows the church to judge the Bible and impose reason on it. And the third maintains that the Bible, interpreted by reason, is to rule the church. The Bible is to rule the church. Imagine that. <laughs> the first deifies, the second debases, and the third exalts reason to her proper place. The Bible is the church's supreme law. Reason is her court. Now there's an interesting expression. The Bible is the church's supreme law. Reason is her court. The Bible is the compass. Reason lighted by the Spirit of God is the binnacle lamp. That's the lamp used for lighting us compass on a ship. So far as I know, this is in the preface of his book now, so far as I know, this is the first attempt to exhibit Baptist church policy, polity in a systematic 
order. I can't argue that. I don't know. But 1847, he said, as far as I know, as far as he knows, this is the first attempt to exhibit Baptist church polity in a systematic order. It claims no other authority over the judgment of any church or individual. It must stand or fall by its own merits, but the principles which it advocates will stand forever and be honored as the bulwarks of all true liberty, sound doctrine, and active piety. So that's the position held, 1847, by this gentleman when he published, uh, when he uh, published Dr. Knowles' manuscripts, completed the work, and published it under his name, of course. All right, we'll be using that. I wanted to bring that to your attention. The second text that I will be drawing heavily from is a book entitled Baptist Principles Reset. These are articles that were published in 1875. Again, obviously, this is not an original. If you can find an original, would like to buy it, put it in my library, I will be fine. But if you can't, you can order this one from Forgotten Books. My wife found it. It is also a facsimile reproduction. Uh, no, sorry, not a facsimile reproduction, but it is a reproduction, specifically an intact, unedited, uh, of the, the original book called Baptist Principles Reset, consisting of articles on distinctive Baptist Principles, 1875. They probably don't have these in PCC's library. They probably don't know that there were any Baptists in 1875. <laughs> these, this is an accumulation of three different, there's actually three different books here. Uh, the first is the accumulation of articles by Jeremiah Bell Jeter. He published a set of articles on this subject. Those were then later put into a book. His articles were published. The late uh, Dr. Jeter, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Bell Jeter. He's a very stern looking dude, as most men of the day were. <laughs> Uh, and I do want to read you something, uh, 1875. I wanted to read you, I just pulled this off offline, uh, Wikipedia, okay? Uh, something of a, of a history of this very grim, stern looking, fine young man. I hope, I think that's just probably part of the problem is that that's a copy. Maybe the original picture didn't look quite that. I don't know, but maybe it did. Anyway, uh, I want to read you some things about his, his biography. Interesting. Now, I said this was three books. Uh, there was actually, uh, the first was the accumulation of all of his articles. And then, then there's other articles by other men. Uh, that were added. This book was 
this is the finished product. This book uh, was originally published in 1875. That would have been just Jeter's articles. Then later there were added some other articles, and those were published in 1902 in uh, Richmond, Virginia. This is the book, this particular edition, has all the articles, both cheaters and the ones that were later added that were brought to the table to enhance what was already written. So, but I wanted you to hear some interesting things about Jeter's biography. He was born in Bedford County, Virginia. You gotta be a good man, right? July the 18th, 1802. His father was named Pleasant Jeter. His father was one of ten children. He was an uncultivated, vacillating, improvident man. As his distinguished son, Dr. Jeter, later described him, he's describing his father, he said he was remarkable for nothing except bad management in his secular affairs and air castle building. <laughs> he was a not a good man. A very bad man. His father. But Jeter's were probably from Huguenot extraction. And uh, just to place him in time for you, biographer said that when Dr. Jeter was born, there were no railways. When he was born, there were no railways, no steamboats, no photographs, no system of tele uh, uh, telegraph or telephone, no McCormick Reapers, no Lucifer matches. That's what they called matches when they first came out. Striker may call Lucifer matches. No breech loading guns. No dynamite. <laughs> he preceded all of that. So he grew up and as a young man he was very, his father was not a godly man at all. But Jeter decided he would be a very uh, distinguished by his self-discipline. So early in life, he gave up the use of strong drink. Not because he was a Christian, but because of his own personal. He just wanted to be known as an austere fellow of self-discipline. Mr. Jeter's own pen has told the full story of his conversion. Now this is of interest. Experience, this is from Dr. Jeter himself wrote this. Experience, as it was generally called, occupied a much more prominent place in sermons and in religious conversion 50 years ago than it does now. That's in his day, the mid-1800s. I had an experience. I was brought up without special religious instruction. In my boyhood, I cherished the hope that in due time I would be converted. I remember distinctly the first prayer that I ever uttered. It was in the summer of 1819. As I was plowing alone, my thoughts were suddenly arrested by the presence and majesty of God. 
I was overwhelmed with awe and falling on my knees there in the field, I pleaded to God for mercy. For days I went with a downcast countenance. For several weeks I carefully concealed my emotions but continued to pray for divine aid. In this time I became quite self-righteous. In a few weeks my impressions were effaced and my fair resolutions were abandoned. I have referred to the revival, he said, that commenced in my neighborhood in 1821. In the early summer, I attended a Sabbath service at Spring Baptist Meeting House. It was communion season. At first, I amused myself with a young lady of my acquaintance. Imagine that, young fellow in church amusing himself with a young lady instead of paying attention. What about that? 1821. Wow, things don't change, do they? At first, I amused myself with a young lady of my acquaintance who was looking gravely on the scene. And soon my own attention was arrested by it, and I burst into an irresistible flood of tears. This was the commencement of my second effort to become a Christian. My second effort to become a Christian. Hmm. I betook myself. Why didn't he just go down the Romans road? <laughs> no. I betook myself to reading the scriptures, meditation, and prayer. In a few days, I attended the burial of a young man I had known. The eyes and mouth of the corpse were stretched wide open, and neither force nor skill could close them. The unfortunate death of the young man and the horrid appearance of his ghastly face made a deep impression on my nervous system that had been weakened by anxiety and sleeplessness, and I deliberately came to the conclusion that to get rid of my nervous trouble, I must suppress my religious convictions for the present at any rate and abandon all hope of salvation. Hmm. Here ends the second chapter of my religious experience. I have given a pretty full account of the commencement of the great revival at Hatcher's Meeting House in August of 1821. Sunday morning, his friend, he had a very, very close friend for life, Daniel Witt, and I rode together to church. Services continued till late in the afternoon. When I raised my head and opened my eyes, I was astonished to find that all the congregation except a few of my friends were gone. Even Wit, his buddy, had left an hour or two before. My purpose to become a Christian was now fixed. It was not merely my purpose to enter the kingdom of heaven, but to outstrip all my associates in the celestial race. My aim was to become a good enough for Christ to receive me, a short time after the memorable meeting at Hatch's Meeting House, there was an appointment for a night service in the neighborhood of my boat. There was a crowded house. Of the sermon, I recollect nothing. At the close of it, the minister said, if any person desires prayer, let him manifest it and I'll pray for him. The struggle was short. In a few minutes, I had distinctly said, pray for me. I have said many things since then which I have had cause to regret 
but I have never been made sorry for that request. Pray for me. Among the inquirers was a rough, uncouth, and ignorant lad named Bill Carter. Occupying a prominent position, he opened wide his mouth and roared like a lion. The scene was indescribably ludicrous, and in spite of the solemnity of the occasion and my deep concern for my salvation, I burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. After weeks of anxiety, watchfulness, prayer, and mourning, I seemed to be much further from salvation than I was at the first. Amen. About this time, hearing the conversion of a young female friend who was awakened some weeks after I was, it seemed a reasonable conclusion that I had missed the road to heaven. About two months after the memorable meeting at Hatcher's Meeting House, I attended a night meeting in a private house near the same place. A song was sung. It made an indelible impression on my mind. It is possible, I inquired, is it possible, I inquired, that the Son of God suffered and died for such a corrupt and guilty creature as I am? One point was settled. I would sin no more if watchfulness, prayer, and earnest purpose could preserve me from sin. As instructed by one of my religious guides, I had often attempted to adopt the words of the father of the demoniac child, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The sentence invariably changed in my lips, Lord, I would believe, help thou my unbelief. I feared that I did not believe, and my words were deceitful. After all my doubts and reasoning, the impression came over me that I did believe. And I repeated the words with enthusiasm. Lord, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. The burden of guilt and anxiety which I had borne so long instantly departed. Hallelujah. My mind was in a calm, pleasing frame. Which to me was inexplicable and which I was not able to analyze. No wave of trouble rolled across my peaceful breast. I strolled to a retired spot at the head of a ravine where I might engage in secret prayer. Till then I had never offered a petition for any being but myself. This morning I prayed for my parents, my brothers, my sisters, my remote kin, my friends, and I continued to extend the circle of my intercession until it comprehended the whole world. As I returned to the house, I met Elder Harris. I told him as well as I could the experiences of my mind as stated above. You are converted, said he. This was a revelation to me. I had not even suspected that I was converted. I had heard no voice, seen no light, felt no shock, had no strange manifestation. 
I was willing, yes, and resolved to forsake my sins and serve Christ. But conversion must be something more wonderful than this, I thought. Elder Harris commenced and related to me his experience. It bore a striking resemblance to my own. Of the genuineness of his conversion, I had no doubt. The gratitude, hope, and joy of my heart broke out in smiles and tears as I met the pious friends who had so long sympathized with me and prayed for me. More than half a century had passed since has passed. More than half a century has passed since I had the experience that I have imperfectly related to you. Much of my experience was circumstantial and non-essential, but in its chief elements I deem it to be sound and evangelical. Conviction for sin, godly sorrow, reformation, despair of salvation by works. Trust in Christ, in short, an experience which comprehends the struggles of a soul in passing from death and life are indispensable. Indispensable. Mr. Jeter glided into the ministry, said, as a youth, it had been his custom as he plowed on Monday to preach over. Listen to this. I wish all those young ministerial students at PCC listened to this testimony. He, this is not Jeter's words now. I've finished his testimony. I'm reading to you the author's words about Mr. Jeter glided, or the preface. Mr. Jeter glided into the ministry. As a youth, it had been his custom as he plowed on Monday to preach over annotations and all the sermon he'd heard the day before. Hmm. That just brings a ton of things to mind, doesn't it? Be wonderful to hear a sermon that was worthy of repeating to yourself the next day. It'd be wonderful to have men who would do that. What great good to their souls would it be to rehearse the message, including all of its annotations, while he's plowing behind a mule. He glided into the ministry is the way it's described. And so he did. He did go into the ministry. At one point at his, he pastored a place uh, called The Neck, N-E-C-K. There were some Methodists there and he pastored Baptist church. He baptized about a thousand persons. Nearly an equal number of whites and blacks. <laughs> so much for the lies about prejudice. There was a lot of controversy in Baptist ranks during his time. Brother John can share more with you 
about it. There's one period of time he's writing about here. He said that the last harmonious, the last harmonious meeting of the Triennial Convention was this year that he's talking about. He said the subsequent meetings of the body were increasingly disturbed by discussions of slavery. And, of course, eventually he quit. A meeting was called for May of the 8th, 1845, in Augusta, Georgia, and at that time, the Southern Baptist Convention was born. As soon as the Southern Baptist Convention was organized, the organization of the convention, they organized the Foreign Mission Board, located at Richmond, and Dr. Jeter was named as its President, President of the Mission Society, of the Foreign Mission Society of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I made several notes to myself here that I won't read you in this history. In closing, I give you this note of his life. Dr. Jeter was esteemed not only in Baptist ranks. He was invited to become chaplain at the University of Virginia. And as an index of the spirit and service Dr. Jeter rendered to his fellow men, I give you the words of Virginia's Governor F.W.M. Holliday. As he stood beside the coffin of Dr. Jeter. He said, Here lies the man by whose counsel and sympathy I have been more strongly sustained in my official duties than by any other man in Virginia. What a commendation. My goodness, what a man. Governor Holliday was not a Baptist. Dr. Jeter was certainly at the time of his death and for years previous to that event one of the leading citizens of Richmond and of Virginia. Dr. Jeter died on Wednesday, February the 18th, 1880 at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so ended the life of this great man. The man who wrote the articles that are now in this book that we shall draw from to establish Baptist principles. I give you just a few words from the preface of this book and that will conclude this lecture. Preface written by R.H. Pitt. He describes all the things that are in the book. He says, In the autumn of 1876, an execution of a purpose formed long before. Dr. Jeter began in the Religious Herald a series of articles entitled Distinctive Baptist Principles. His mind was not only rich in the accumulation, accumulated stories of information, well digested, but it was characterized also by a manly vigor and a most uncommon candor.
Dr. Jeter was a model controversial writer. Now that phrase struck me. A model controversial writer. Hmm. Here's how he explained it. This is how he defines a model controversial writer. Scrupulously fair in his statement of his opponent's views, he never descended from the high plane of courteous debate to indulge in personalities. He was incapable of subterfuge or indiscretion. He took no shortcuts in discussion. The articles from his pen, which follow, which we print in this volume, illustrate these characteristics. No word of bitterness will be found in them. They are not marred by any attempt at smartness. They are never extravagant, never hysterical. They are marked by a sober and conscious strength, which makes them very convincing. I hope they are very convincing. And Lord willing, we shall see what they are. So, an introduction to the course and to the material that we'll be seeking to give to you. I'm grateful. One of the things I do love and appreciate, I'm an old man, and I'm certainly not modern, modernist, but I do like that in these days you can find ancient books printed and readily available that was not possible just a few short years ago. These reprints are readily available by way of internet and these uh, print-on-demand uh, publishing companies, which was never, never seen or heard of in my lifetime. And I'm so grateful for that. It certainly makes a lot of material available that would not otherwise have been available. So those are the two principal books, not not exclusive, but principal. As well as that, I did have the courtesy to tell Brother John before I announce it that from time to time along the way, I will be asking Brother John to bring us a lecture uh, befitting certain historical points as we move through the history of Baptist distinctives. Uh, I'll ask John to come and and put a, a, a uh, an historical context before us for certain uh, areas as we discuss them. Now, we haven't gotten into any of the particulars of the course. We will do that. We will have something of an introductory lecture next time that will introduce us to the actual course material. Any Questions or comments before we move on out of this?